You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 38, 1991's Out for Justice and the early cinema of Steven Seagal, featuring Richard Nixon, the CIA, Iran-Contra, Henry Silva, Aikido, Chicago, Brooklyn, Alaska, tight jeans, green beret hats, sleeveless vests, Twin Jamaican drug lords, Jesus beards, crack smoking, cue balls, boobs, Gary Busey, atomic warheads, power tools, playmates, Michael Caine, vision quests, pipe cutters, buckskin jackets, Harry Dean Stanton, rednecks, environmentalism, and one iconic ponytail. Martin? Yes. You killed my wife. Fuck you and die. Another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to go to the blood bank? Absolutely. So, this episode is going to cover Out for Justice from 1991 and the early cinema of Steven Seagal because I think that we can be in complete agreement here, Martin. It's some of the strangest, most inexplicable, big budget studio filmmaking that ever existed in any era. Yeah, it's. You think about, you know, there's movie stars from the past, right? And you think about someone like Humphrey Bogart, who's not a conventionally attractive man, but he had that, he had something, right? And he was a good actor, but he, he it worked and people found him attractive. They found him charismatic. I watch this stuff and I get when I'm watching like The Big Sleep. Like, okay, I understand. I watch Steven Seagal and I think back to even my youth because you and I are both the same age. We grew up watching these movies and I'm trying to remember, did I actually think he was cool? Um, probably yes. I mean, I think he is a, a, a guy who's made for teenage boys, like, because once you grow up just a little bit, like my dad would just laugh his ass off when we'd watch these movies together. He's like, this guy's ridiculous. We'd watch Die Hard. He's like, oh, I can, re- I like this McLean guy, you know? And I just, I do not understand on paper how this worked and how he was a star. Um, but also, I enjoyed every fucking movie I watched for this episode. It's this weird thing of like, I'm having so much fun, but somewhat ironically, but also I'm really enjoying it for real. Like, they're all entertaining and fun. That's what I was trying to parse out as I watched them, too, because I think I even watched a couple more than you did, where I started with Nico, aka Above the Law, and actually made my way all the way through Fire Down Below, pretty much in order. And the one question I did keep asking myself was, I recognize that these are bad, yet I wholly enjoy them. And 
even admire some of the craft on display, especially with like some of the early fight scenes. They kind of were like anything, like unlike anything else, even in action cinema at the time. The way that Seagal fought, the Aikido, how fast his hands moved, and how he could literally wipe out an entire room without really looking like he was athletic at all. Like you watched Schwarzenegger, the man is just an Adonis. Yeah. You know, you watch Van Damme Spinning and he's and- just an absolute like physical specimen. Um, even something like we just did the predator movies. You look at all the beefcakes that were in that and like Carl Weathers Stallone is like an absolute like physical specimen as well. Like all the guys, even Chuck Norris, who was a little more every man looking ish with the beard and everything. Like you still watched him and recognized like the, athletic ability that was on display and fuck man i mean his first movie is what him fighting bruce lee too and holding his own even though he loses he's still holding his own like you watch seagal he's not cut he's not particularly handsome but like he still had a fighting style that was fascinating and he could like completely destroy the people like there were so many moments in those early movies and that was kind of like the signature Seagal scene from, uh, you know, Nico forward is that like five guys enter the room, circle him, and he does his weird like hand thing where he starts flipping them around and it's doing a, a strange like kind of dance to like ward them off, you know, but like it, it was like fascinating because nobody else did that. Well, I mean, it reminds me a lot of just how when John Wick came out and everyone kind of started flipping out of, oh, this is this new style. A lot of taking, you know, a lot of these taking guys to the ground, kind of MMA moves sometimes right. mixed in with, you know, almost like gun kata, you know, from like equilibrium or something. And, and with him, he was unique in that he wasn't doing spins. He wasn't acrobatic and he was, but it certainly couldn't run. He could not run. But he he, did, he had a couple of things in his arsenal that like I was starting to kind of pick out as I went forward. Is okay, like you said, five guys come into a room. He's usually in a shop of some sort, some place that has or a bar or a bar which has windows, but also glass plated like like um, lots cool, of shit cool. he can throw people through. Exactly. So it's like he has this thing of like he really uses because I mean, well, he did a lot of his own choreography in his early films, most of them, and he would at least the Aikido choreography. So maybe not the stunt well, choreography. Well, that but. was his only before starring in Above the Law. Like that was his only real credits is he had done some fight choreography on a couple Bond movies. And there's like one other thing that's slipping my mind right now. But that was the other amazing thing back to your point is the fact that like he went from basically no credits to starring, co-writing and producing Nico. Like that's a massive jump. And like it's not like he was doing this for canon, even though Above the Law is a canon level film. He was doing it for Warner Brothers. Yeah, it's it's really weird, but I mean, I wonder again how, you know, you're talking about his agent earlier who who sold him pretty hard, but he did have, I mean, he had something unique because I think they took a chance on him, you know, and again, he's not he's not Van Damme, he's doing he's a weird style, and his his fight scenes are still fucking great. I mean, there's a fight scene out for justice. My favorite scene he's ever done is in the pool hall. Oh my god, it's amazing! I w- I got I watched some VHS a couple years ago. My brother and I found it at a thrift store, and we hadn't seen it. Let's just pop it in at my parents' cabin, and we get to that scene, and we were like jumping off the couch. We're like, "Oh my god, it is brutal!" He shoves that one dude into a phone booth twice. Yeah, 
or just the, for me breaking that guy's face and his teeth with the the pool cue, the pool ball in the the shirt is so good like all that kind of and he was also really gory like a lot of his stuff he was he was breaking arms in every movie you think about under siege with the power tool scene you know he gets oh, or dude um, on Deadly Ground, when she directed, I mean, it's fucking like the Expendables kind of blood, like over the top, like like almost Django, massive squibs, like just or or uh, you know like the, um, Rodriguez style, you know, there's just chests opening up, people flying across rooms, or even Verhoeven, like just, oh just yeah, those massive Rob Botin kind of blood squibs. Yeah, you're right. And there's an argument too that Steven Seagal walked, certainly again didn't run, so that uh, the Sea Lot guys could run on screen because it's like mm-hmm. his hands are so fast. That's the one miracle of watching him fight is that his hands actually move that quickly. The the rest of him does not. We're like the sea lock guys, uh, you know, in the raid films, like they, everything about them is athletic. That's the most amazing thing about watching those movies is those guys just do so much bodily damage to one another and then get up and are just sweating and then continue to like punch each other 20 times in the abdomen. And you're like, he should be dead. That man should be dead. We're like Seagal. And, you know, Seagal, to his, his credit, too, he wasn't always killing people. Like you said, he was almost like disabling them or like tossing them into a thing so they didn't get up again or breaking their nose could, so they couldn't see. He wasn't always killing, although there was a lot of head stabs, too. So, like, Dude, there's some, there's some raucous deaths in these movies. The one oh, yeah. in, on Deadly Ground, he shoves a knife in the dude's head and then shoves his head into the wall and the knife jams back. It's just like, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, even in Nico, you know, his first car chase ever, he jumps on top of a car and is literally punching a guy in the face while holding on to a speeding car as it goes under a Chicago overpass the entire time. And you're like, what is, like, this is amazing that they even let him do this. Although at that point, I think you're really dealing with a a stunt double. But, like, yeah, everything about these movies was watching how quickly he could disable people and, like, put them down. And, like, Nico, in a weird way, came about... Because like you you bring up his agent who was Michael Ovitz who I wasn't even sure if that was his agent he was Ovitz's Aikido teacher and at the time Ovitz was like possibly the most powerful uh, agent in Hollywood because he was like Tom Cruise's agent uh, Barbara Streisand's agent like all these fucking people and the legend goes that Ovitz made a bet that he could turn the most uncharismatic person he'd ever met into a superstar overnight and thus Nico was born in 1988 which for my money outside of out for justice the the spine number of this episode Nico is still my favorite Steven Seagal movie I love this movie because it it doubles as the autobiography of Steven Seagal in yeah. like an insane version of that and that's the thing obviously we have to talk about is would if you do any research about the man himself, the real Steven Seagal, and the the bullshit stories he's made up about himself, and this this almost Tommy was so kind of history, and this guy of like I'm a good old American boy, I want everyone to see me that way, but also being a narcissistic psychopath. I mean, and when we you watch these films in order, like we both did, for the most part, 
you watch him gain more and more control on the films he's doing. Right? Along with weight. Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's you know, tubs of KFC while he's uh, gaining more control on his films. But he the way that his characters are all written and, and acted and directed to be the most amazing guy on the planet. So and if the films are all weird because he'll want to sometimes, because he writes some of these too, is he wants them to have an arc and like um, start somewhere and kind of learn something. But at the same time, I'm never a bad dude and I'm never uncool. And you hear the stories about when he was on SNL, like that was kind of the problem. It's like a couple of scenes they wanted to do were going to have him losing. And he's like, I don't lose. And they're kind of laughing. And he's like, no. And that episode never made the air, right? I don't think they ever showed it because he was so... They say he's the worst host they've ever worked with, like in the history of SNL. He was just so difficult, so... Because that's the other thing is that he was a funny choice for SNL in the first place because he's so... There's no sense of humor to him whatsoever. Like, he'll say some funny shit, but nine times out of ten, it's almost unintentionally funny. Well, his... A thing he tries to do, there's a, there's a part of him that I think is the most unlikable aspect of his character um, in movies, is this like snide, I'm smarter than you thing he tries to do, but it doesn't play. Like, when I watch um, Bruce Willis and Die Hard talking shit, I'm like, oh my god, he's, he's, he's funnier than these guys, he's smarter than these guys, he's cooler than these guys. Joe so, Hallenbeck, baby. Yeah, or, yeah, Joe Hallenbeck, yeah, he's this real dude, and I, and I buy it. And of course, you get Shane Black dialogue, doesn't hurt either. But with Seagal, I'm like, I don't think you're cool, dude. Like, I don't think you're you're able to make jokes with Pam Greer. Like, she's ten times the performer you are. She's cooler than you are, and you're trying to be the like busting. He's always busting balls. Like, hey, you know, I'm just fucking joking around here. Do this weird Italian thing. That's the weirdest thing about his his character. I think you know what he sees himself as, and I hadn't thought about it until you just kind of went off on that tangent. Is that. <laughs> Uh, he's he thinks he's the real life Jack Reacher. Like that's how he views himself as like there's that Tom Segura bit that he would do where he talks about, you know, discovering Steven Seagal Lawman, where he's Gold. like an actual deputy in New Orleans. But, you know, Segura even goes over the fact that like one of the most annoying things about Steven Seagal is that he'll like he's one of those guys who's instantly an expert at everything, is they'll be like Oh, you see that chopper over there? That's a PC-9842. How do you know that? I've been trying to fly in choppers for 20 years. Oh, you see that car over there? Yeah, that's used for racing, yada, yada. How do you know that? Oh, I've been racing cars for like 15 years. And you're like, what? Well, and it, starting with Nico, you get the whole, the opening, the opening just um, montage the, of his life story. The first image is a fat baby photo of Seagal. And he narrates that shit like it's the Godfather. And it's so weird because it's like maybe it's what happens. Like, yeah, so I'm at a baseball game. And, of course, there's a, you know, an Aikido demonstration. And I was like, hey, I want to learn that, Dad. And then I did that. And then I was in Japan for a while. Oh, no, no, no. Slow down. He doesn't say, I want to learn that, Dad. Let's do that. What he does is he goes, there was a tiny Japanese man doing an Aikido demonstration at a baseball game. Which, first of all, and this is immediately (laughs) after saying my parents were first-generation Italian immigrants to Chicago. My first question is this. What fucking baseball game in Chicago was there a little Japanese man doing a martial arts demonstration? Certainly wasn't in Wrigley Field. Maybe the Black Sox? I don't really know. Or the White Sox in this case. It's like, uh, I don't think 
you would actually see that at a baseball game in Chicago. Also, baseball games don't have halftime shows. Like, when did this occur? The seventh inning stretch? I have questions, Steven. Well, and that's and that's the beginning of his career. It's like that intro is like that was his introduction to the American everybody. audience. To everybody. So it's like we don't even have a sense of who this guy is. Like, then one thing if like even Schwarzenegger, when he kind of get into films, like we had an idea of him as this like bodybuilder mystery universe. And this is like, who are you? What the fuck is this? It's so strange. Well, and again, to take it back to how quickly Seagal became an overnight sensation, Schwarzenegger and like Stallone, you know, famously even had to like struggle to get into Hollywood. Schwarzenegger took like little bit parts in like Robert Altman movies and it wasn't until like Bob Raffleson put him in Stay Hungry that it actually got like a substantial part. Stallone was doing like bit parts and everything. And, and stag even, movies. And stag movies, The Italian Stallion, which I can't remember what the original title of it was like One Night at Freddy's or something. But like Death Race 2000, Death Race 2000, but then eventually more or less had to write Rocky just to get himself a starring role. And even then the producers were fighting and were like, we don't want this guy to star in the movie. Seagal got to write, produce and star in Nico and then tell his entire autobiography or his fictionalized, like mythologized autobiography from like frame one because immediately after all of this weird, like, Godfather-esque narration, we cut to sepia-tone footage of Seagal, like, not just fighting in Japan, but he's just owning some student and speaking Japanese in front of an entire dojo of students. And it was, like, clearly, like, I went to Japan to study with the masters. And it's like, we don't see him study. We see him as one of the masters. That's it's a, crazy. And that's exactly, that scene encapsulates him from then until now is you don't ever see him at a disadvantage. At right. Like, even the people he fights in movies, like usually like you watch a Van Damme movie, you think about like the, the plotting of Bloodsport or Kickboxer. There's an unbeatable villain and you get the training montages of like, I have to, the Rocky stuff, right? Sloan too. Sloan had that very masochistic McLean, you know, he always had to be, he never had a villain in any of his movies where I'm like, oh my God, Oh, he fought William Forsythe, this doughy fuck who doesn't even have a gun. He's so like, fucking fat and high on crack the in, the entire movie. Yeah. But I mean, famously, Rocky loses. Yeah, you know exactly. Like, like Stallone wrote an entire film for him to star in where he loses at the end. And it's like Seagal wouldn't even let himself lose on Saturday Night Fucking Live. And then we smash cut Nico from him owning people in front of a Japanese dojo that he runs to... And then I got recruited in the CIA. What, sir? And he's working in like Vietnam and Laos during the late era of the Vietnam War, basically running black ops and investigating heroin shipments that his brothers in arms are now kind of in on. Enter the great Henry Silva, who also played a villain in the director's like previous movie before this code of silence, you know, one of the major authors of Seagal's fame is Andrew Davis who yep. would go on, you know, to be an Academy award nominated director for the fugitive, but he makes Nico and he actually lends this movie a lot of weight because not only is it like incredibly sound from like a, 
like a structural and like technical standpoint, but like he also brings guys like Henry Silva in to play the bad guy. Poltiateski legend Henry Silva, evil like nightmare faced Henry Silva comes in as a like CIA torturer after like bundles of heroin, and he's arguably the best part of the movie. Henry Silva is one of the few actors who's been in many episodes for us. We had uh, Hell Needham with Megaforce. True. We had him in Tall T. True. Um, and then we have him here. Like, he was in three, and he's not a, you know, we expect other bigger actors, but like Henry Silva just is this running. He's one of the great genre actors yeah. of all time because he just kind of found a character lane. Like, he's the epitome of like a character actor. Like, yes. he just found his lane, which was normally like evil dude. And really wrote it all the way. And, like, he was really fucking good at it. He was so snide. Oh, yeah. You know, he had that, like, really... He he also just... There's no face like his. Remember, remember when he was in Dick Tracy and, like, other guys? Like, they did makeup on them for him. They Henry just Silva just looked like Henry Silva. He already did. They just accentuated his features that were already there. Like, for him, it was just like... Yeah, okay, just make him look more like Henry Silva. He's got that beef of a face, you know? When he has all those great starring roles in those Fernando de Leo Italian crime pictures, too, during the early 70s, that, like, were also the inspiration for a lot of, like, Quentin Tarantino stuff, like Pulp Fiction. You know, Jules and Vincent and that are partially based on Henry Silva. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is, but also, you know, it's a weird one. It, it reminds me out of all these films, a lot of like Tim Heidecker's Decker series. Um, sure. Which is it, the way that, I mean, obviously Decker is sending up, you know, um, Heidecker sending up actors who are so full of themselves. They're like, oh, I am a CIA agent and I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. And this, again, his first film is like, you're great at everything and we're three minutes into this movie. I think that's what I want to talk about too is that it's like and that's to take it back to the notion of like why I'm enjoying these in the first place even though I'm recognizing that they're bad is that there's such a sincerity and belief in himself on Steven Seagal's part that also in my mind renders guys like Heidecker and like any kind of parody just completely worthless to a certain degree because there's nothing quite like the real thing, especially with Seagal when he like, he totally buys into like this myth and this air of greatness that was just kind of manufactured around him to the point to where like in interviews, he would vaguely claim that he was associated with the CIA and you would be like, sir, you're from Lansing, Michigan. He, I texted you earlier as I said, is he the douchiest action star? And you're like, absolutely, yes. Oh, yeah. You know, all of them have like, you know, chips on their shoulder in one way or another. But he was also the guy during interviews who famously would rip on every single other martial artist. Like, I saw this one, and it was Arsenio Hall interviews him. And I said, what do you think about these other guys who are working in your field? Like Van Damme. I think he even brings up a young Michael Jai White. It was like in the 90s. And he's like, don't make me laugh. You know, and he just about them, like, what do you think of their martial arts? Style? He goes, I won't even talk about their. They're like, and he's like, well, what about Wesley Snipes? <laughs> I won't talk about that. It was like, fuck those guys. They're all fake. I'm the real deal. And it's like, this guy was. The Philly in me respects that, though. Well, it's, it's funny, but it's like, what a fucking douchebag. It's like, part of being an actor is like, being, even if you believe that, like, when you're being interviewed, you play the part of like, 
I'm just happy to be in the same business with them. But this guy, he from day one, again, he was just like, I'm the best in the world. Don't you forget it. I wonder if that comes from the fact of, you know, that he's not an actor, though. Like, that he first was just this dude who literally was like... Because there is some truth to the lie. He did go to Japan and study Aikido with some of the masters. He is very good at it. He is very good at it. He did have his own dojo for a little bit. He did train lots of famous people, kind of like Bruce Lee. He's sort of like the ethnically ambiguous answer to Bruce Lee. He does kind of have even the same ego as like Mm -hmm. Bruce Lee too. I'm in no way saying that Steven Seagal is as good as Bruce Lee, mind you. But like you kind of see it, but you also wonder if that's where this sort of like lack of respect for any of his peers came from is because it was like, he didn't study fucking acting. He wasn't there for the art. He was there to be the most famous professional out of his mind dude in the room who could whip everybody's ass. And like with that comes a lot of shit talking. Yeah. And it's, it's, I would, I would agree with that. And we watch his career progress through the films we watched for this episode but then, of course, like up to the modern day where he just went into DTV land making really crazy shit and got more and more unhealthy looking. I watched a funny Corridor Digital video. They were kind of looking at how they have to edit his fight scenes out because he can't do shit anymore. Well, they have to dub a lot of his dialogue, too, because sometimes he would get B-word fat to quote Patton Oswalt to where they would, <laughs> they would bring another. I love that. I love that. They would bring another actor in to basically dub his dialogue over, and then they would have all of his stunts and fights would be done by actual body doubles because, frankly, he was too fucking fat to move. Well, and it's like now he's reaping what he sowed, right? It's like he spent his whole career being like, I'm the best in the fucking world, fuck everybody, and everyone's just like laughing at him now. Like a lot of people are. We should also get this out of the way up front, like... We've already acknowledged that Steven Seagal is a massive douchebag. Also, probably a sex predator. Like, if all of the claims are to be believed by all these women, and frankly, like, believe women, yada, 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 all that stuff too. But, like, I'm a big believer in the fact that, like, if one person says it and you say, oh, that's not true, okay, cool, I'll take your word for it. If five fucking people come out and say it, then it's like, what's going on, dude? Yes. And he's, like, best friends with Putin, yeah, I mean, like, there's just all kinds of... Which is even more wild because, like, again, to go back to Nico, there's almost a strand of, like, leftist politics that run through his movies from Nico all the way up through, like, Fire Down Below, let's say. Especially, like, on Deadly Ground and Fire Down Below where they became, like, full-on, like, environmentalist TED Talks. Like, Nico is all about, like kind of like Iran Contra and takes its name is from like a Nixon quote, which is very bizarre and how like Nixon says like, nobody's above the law, yada, yada. But it's like an entire questioning of like authority and power and like who holds power. And like that theme runs through a lot of his characters. Cause he is kind of playing the same dude or at least like versions of the same dude over and over again. And that dude is always questioning authority and he's questioning like the systems of government and like power that operate around him. So he's not like who you would pinpoint as being like a far right talking mouth later in life. But then again, neither was Dennis Hopper. Right. And so, I mean, but a lot of these films all fall back on the classic Reagan era Fascism. Uh, fascism. And again, being against authorities, also being against like 
due process. You know, the classic, <laughs> you know, it was that it was that era of there's like the, the hard ass lieutenant who's like, You can't you're a loose cannon, you can't do that. Hey, fuck you, always let me out, I'll take care of it. Like, which is completely right wing. Which True. is like very like you know, just deregulate everything. Because Nico even has I think it might be the only Steven Seagal movie I can think of off the top of my head, at least in the run that we watched, that was like has a gun give me a your gun and your badge scene. Like totally where where Nico Nico Toscani is stripped of all of his authority inside of the Chicago Police Department. Because we haven't even gotten to that part of the movie yet. The fact that he jumps from the CIA and then throat goes buck against Henry Silva when Henry Silva starts like torturing civilians in the name of heroin you know basically was like fuck this I'm out of here and then goes and becomes a Chicago cop and it's like okay but that's the funny thing is that Nico shows you the backstory that the rest of the movies will have another character come in and read off of like a sheet of paper being like, can you believe what this guy that we're dealing with? He's not just a cook. He's also a black ops CIA agent who they bring in to like train other armies whenever some kind of invasion's happening. Like you pointed to before we started recording the the great speech that Arlie Ermey does in On Deadly Ground where he talks about Steven Seagal like he's the real life like Sergeant Slaughter. It's it's really it's really interesting because what you're saying though about the politics and this had this 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 running somewhat leftist um bent you'll see in some of his films is although it's two things. One, it feels lazy, like he read about it in a magazine and then was like, Oh, yeah. I, especially with Nico, it's like, I'm going to write an action movie. So it's like every cliche shoved together. But also, again, every character, every character in a movie usually gets a save the cat moment or a kill the cat moment. He gets like 20 per movie. Like every scene is everyone being like, Oh my God, he's the best. Or him, like, he's so moral. And it's, all it is there is, is as a. Uh, a catalyst to show us how amazing this character Steven Seagal is. He, he is. literally saves a puppy in Out for Justice that's thrown out a window in a trash bag. It's And then rides around all night while pursuing William Forsyth with it in the car to the point to where like the puppy kind of disappears for like 30 minutes of this movie and then he gets back in and literally looks at the dog at one point and goes, oh, you're still here. And I'm like, that dog is still there? You didn't drop him off at any point for some kibble? Well, and it, yeah, it's like, I'm going to call him Coraggio. Well, there's a scene early. I think there's a scene in um, Out for Justice where I got so just like, I wanted to just turn it off for a second and, and take a break. Was he's talking to that kid on the side of the road who's selling seltzer water. And again, Nico, uh, sorry, not Nico, but Gino knows everybody in the neighborhood, right? Well, that's and, the whole point of that the, movie to were, a degree. And it's, but it's like, dude, we've already seen it four times. I don't need it. It's the, the scene that literally does not push the plot at all. And he's like, give me a seltzer water. He goes, how's your mother? Oh, you know, she's, she's clean now. Oh, thank God. Uh, basically say, alluding to he helped get his, his mom off drugs. Now, to be fair... I couldn't tell you what the plot of Out for Justice actually is. It doesn't really have one. But B, that's a recurring theme in all of his movies to, to go along with the leftist politics is that he becomes this weird man of the people in all of his films, starting with Nico. Because Nico is like, he's a Chicago cop. He's a Chicago super cop, frankly, who then, you know, in his quest to basically take down Henry Silva again, because it kind of becomes convoluted. Like Henry Silva comes in, there's like a senatorial, like potential it's assassination confusing. at one point. There's a priest who's harboring like 
Nicaraguan refugees mm-hmm. in like a basement of a church. But though that's where like the man of the people stuff comes in is that Steven Seagal becomes like this Jesus figure for these South American refugees. And you're just watching it the whole time. And he even is introduced when he's in Vietnam for the first time. Like one of the reasons that he goes buck wild against Henry Silva is the fact that like he's torturing innocent civilians, even though they're technically the enemy because he's in Vietnam, if you think about it. But we're not going to you know splice any hairs with Steven Seagal here. But like he would do this again and again in his movies, Out for Justice being like kind of one of the ultimate examples of it is that he was always standing up for like the underprivileged or like the people the he was the voice of the voiceless to put it that way like fucking fire down below is basically his Aaron Brockovich it's really strange yeah he's again he's the best like he's he's all these things but he's also everything like right. he's a walking contradiction because he wants to at once be the man of the people like you're saying but he's also like a man of culture you know, so he's a down-home neighborhood boy who wants to help out. You help your mother. How's your mother doing? But also, I was in, I was in Japan. How's your mother doing? How's your mother? I was, Say hi to your mother for me. I was in Japan studying for years, but also, I'm also a you know appreciator uh, of uh, the art of Monet. And I said again, the, the thing of the Segura thing of I know everything. Like all his characters, it's these like these hodgepodge of a guy who's so interesting in every. Fuck. It kind of reminds me of Ron Burgundy busting out a fucking jazz flute. It's like that level of like, oh, I dabble. Like that douchebaggery all the time. Or even those Dos Equis commercial of being the most interesting man in the world. Like it's amazing that no ad genius, no Don Draper was sitting in an office and was like, you know who should we get to sell Dos Equis? Steven fucking Seagal. Well, you know, and think about how a lot of action stars from that era have either pivoted or you know gone into politics like you know Schwarzenegger or done JCVD like Jean-Claude um I think even Stallone has made more fun of his his former parts or done a cool thing like Creed and kind of took it a different angle I think about someone like Dolph doing like the red the um Old Spice commercial where he's Drago and it's like Dolph understands in this day and age like dude I was kind of a has-been I make money in a DTV but like I'm cool with that. Dolph also has a PhD in rocket science, though, too, right? Yes. So like, he's, he's not a stupid guy. The thing is, I don't think fucking Steven Seagal's a rocket scientist. I don't think he's a smart guy at all. No. you know. And again, I mean, all these plots, especially the ones he, he writes, and I think he had a hand in all these scripts, these early ones, he, he could feel, again, him like injecting his biography onto every character. He's like... Well, I'm just going to play Seagal. Like I'm going to play this 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 hodgepodge of myth that I've created around myself of CIA cop, usually Italian, they're, they're martial, arts, through, martial master, arts master, sex god. That's another thing. This guy, <laughs> even when he was skinny, I think he was actually uglier skinny. I think when he added a little bit of weight to his face, he got more handsome. He's downright weird looking in uh, in Nico. Like he's got this weird like like. A rectangular face. It's super angular. He yeah. kind of looks like a Minecraft character. It's <laughs> like a character from that animated show Clarence. Just this, like, these boxy faces. But there's a scene in, in Mark for Death where he's, they're in Jamaica. And he walks in, like, doing kind of a Miami Vice thing where he's got, like, a low, like, a low, um, 
uh, tank top on with a sport jacket on top, rolled up to the sleeves, and he walks in, and the whole room just gets quiet. And the hottest woman just watches him and looks like, hey, what's your story? I'm like, look at that fucking dude. Like, if that's what it takes to get laid, I'm just never going to have sex again. I'm just going to, like, I'm going to end it. This is bullshit. Well, the fashion and the accents of Steven Zagal are so all over the place. We go from, like, Chicago to, like, Brooklyn to, like, him doing, like, the full-on, like, whispery, like, Brando thing. And then, like, he's also doing, like, down-home redneck and fire down below. He's kind of doing a weird Native American thing in on Deadly Ground. Like, he's so all over the place. And, again, that's uh, not to keep coming about or coming back to Tom Segura, but Tom Segura yep. even talks about that that bit of his to where like every time they would arrest like a different race of person on Steven Seagal lawman, he would talk to them different and be like, oh, I'm sorry, my brother, I'm keeping you down. And he would talk to like white people like, oh, it's okay, buddy. Like, we'll do this. Well, it'll be all right. You'll make bail. Well, mucho queso. And he's the mucho one. Que- yeah. <laughs> that's, my, that's my favorite. But yeah, but I mean, like... Man of the people, though. Man of the people. He is a man... Like, he sees himself as this great, like, human ambassador. And he couldn't be farther from that in real life. Because, I mean, he's a fucking wife beater. Like, he's a total piece of shit if you read anything about him. And also, there's all those fucking legendary stories about him on set just being a mega asshole. Like... Kevin Hart has that one bit about getting ch- him getting choked out after being an asshole on one of the sets of his movies to where he actually shits his pants. Yeah, <laughs> Steven Tobolowski tells all those stories from the set of The Glimmer Man about how like on day one of shooting, he just mag- magically decided he had like a spiritual awakening and he wasn't going to kill people on screen anymore. And Warner Brothers was like, uh, you are because you're Steven Seagal and that's what we pay you to do. So like Tobolowski had to basically like Jedi mind trick him into killing his character in the scene because like the director even was like, Steven, whatever you do, don't talk to him. Don't talk to Seagal. Like he will just say, he'll just find any reason to, to like basically sell you that he's right. And Tobolowski like went through this entire, again, like reverse like psychology on Seagal to where he was like, cause Tobolowski's playing a serial killer who takes like a priest hostage, has a gun to his head in the glimmer man. And he's like, Steven, think of it this way. I'm an evil person. And maybe by killing me, you'll allow my soul to ascend into whatever higher you know plane awaits it. And then maybe even be reincarnated into a new body so that I have another shot at redemption. And Seagal like looked at him and was like, so I'd actually be helping you out. And he's like, yeah, exactly. So please kill my fucking character on screen. There's, I love that story. And it reminds me a lot of the scene in On Deadly Ground where he's talking to, I forget the actor's name, the, the asshole. It's earlier on in the film, the classic, how do you change the essence of a man? Oh, it's Mike Starr. Mike Starr. From Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, and, and from Ed Wood, one of my favorite characters from Ed Wood. And so... For the listeners, he beats the shit They're, again. Man of the people, my, uh, Mike Starr and his and his oil field buddies are making fun of a Native American guy who's an alcoholic, and they're basically calling him chief and being super horrible, super racist, just super really racist, awful. and like and like and like making him trip and like and pouring whiskey in his face, the whole thing, and like for some reason, um, 
Seagal is hanging back, and it's like there's no reason why he is. Um, but he's just like, I guess to build up suspense, but it's stupid because Seagal directed it. And he's like waiting, waiting. He goes up. In a buckskin jacket. And it, yes. And he and he goes up and they do this, uh, the hand slap game. And they say, hey, if I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated if you got real big bowls, right? And again, trying to be snide and funny and cooler. It's like, you're not. But then he beats the shit out of, of my star. And he's like, how do you change the essence of a man. And Mike Starr's like, I, I need time. And, and, uh, so I was like, I do too. Like, what is happening? This is also <laughs> after Steven Seagal has straight up decimated 10 other dudes. And like, to the point to where the bartender's even losing her mind, she's like, Forrest, don't break anything. And he's like, mm, yeah, got it. And then proceeds to break everything in the fucking room using other people's bodies as weapons. Well, it was Nurse Ratched, is the bartender. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't think that's correct. We'd have to look up that credit, but like if it is Nurse Ratchet, that makes it even more amazing. But to your point, it's just, again, he's a walking contradiction of a human being is that he wants to be like this Zen fucking master, but at the same time, he can't help but be a total weapon. There's also that great story that Bruce McGill told one time in an interview to where like Seagal, I think it's on exit wounds, and it's it's being directed by a director who uses like almost like the Tony Scott method of shooting action where he shoots like six or seven cameras at a time. And Seagal notoriously does not rehearse. And like the director's trying to get him to rehearse, trying to get him to at least choreograph the stuff. Seagal gets into like a straight up like red faced 40 minute shouting match with this director screaming at the dude while like Bruce McGill and Anthony Anderson are just waiting for the fucking like scene to start. And finally the director's like, I think it's Andras Bartuyak. Oh yeah. His name. Yeah. He, he, did, he did Romeo must die and all yeah, that shit. Exactly. And, and a doom. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Um, and then finally the director is just like, fuck it. We're just going to roll it. And they go and they shoot the scene. And apparently Seagal was so mad and he was in a moo moo the whole time because he was so fat <laughs> that he forgot they're, they're shooting this scene on a boat and he forgot which door was to the stage and which door was to the ocean. And Bruce McGill saw him going out the wrong door and looked at Anthony Anderson and was like, should I tell him? And Anthony Anderson's like, fuck no, fuck that guy. So they let him walk out the, the wrong door and fall out of a boat in a muumuu into the ocean. That's how big... Imagine oh. what a dickhead you have to be to have, like, your co-workers do that. Because he could have died. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's like... You hate Just let him like, fucking die. We'll take the insurance payment. It was Louise Fletcher. It was. Oh, was it really? Uncredited. Un uncredited. That's insane. What a what a poll on your part, because I, I watched that movie last night, and I still didn't pick up on that one. I think I was too fascinated by Seagal's, like... Zen ridiculousness. Now, speaking of Zen ridiculousness, can we talk about Hard to Kill for a minute? Yes. One of the strangest movies in his... Well, it's hard to gauge. They're all strange in their own right. I think that's also what makes them so fascinating. But Hard to Kill is his Jesus Beard movie. And also the, the movie where he's literally like put into a coma, comes out of the coma, looks like fat Jesus and still gets to fuck Kelly LeBrock like in the very next scene. And then he again, married her. Becoming a straight, and he also beat her. Uh, yes, becoming he a straight up sex god looking like Jesus and then delivers one of his greatest lines of all time because, you know, 
who he's, what institutional corruption is he taking on in Hard to Kill? Corrupt Senator Bill Sadler. And he gets to deliver, do you want to do the line? Well, so, so the, the senator's line that he uses in his campaign speeches is, and you can take that to the bank. And, and our boy Seagal, to a TV, he's alone. <laughs> he's watching this. He goes, I'm going to take you to the bank, Senator. Long beat. The blood bank. <laughs> and I think, like, again, like, that line also is another thing that encapsulates, like, what makes these movies so great. Because, like, I want to be very clear. I had a fucking blast watching these movies. Like, there's some that we've, we've put ourselves through, like, one actor or one filmmaker or one series where by the end we're both kind of punch drunk. I could have done ten more of these. By the time I got to the end of On Deadly Ground, I'm like, oh, I want to go deep because honestly, I've not watched a lot of his more recent DTV stuff. I've heard it's ridiculous. And if it's like 10% as insane as these, I'm in. Yeah, that's the thing is that we end our run on this episode right when he really starts getting crazy. Like there's the weirdness is only kind of poking through in like the early really good stuff. And then when he really gets famous after Under Siege, after making a ton of it, because that movie grossed like $180 million or some nasty number. That was the peak. Yeah, and that's when he gets to direct a movie basically right after that with On Deadly Ground. And then go back to part two, Under Siege, immediately. Yeah, because it didn't do that well. But because he starts, he wields all that power to become this strange environmentalist, like all of his concerns start shining through to where like he thinks of himself as like Barbara fucking Streisand or something like on deadly ground kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah, Like all of a sudden he's an activist and you're trying to save the fucking planet like on deadly ground, which is better than I remembered it being when I was a kid is like an action movie that also doubles as a treatise on like why the oil companies are like killing the environment with all their spills and stuff. Now, granted this is at like the peak of when that was happening too with Exxon Valdez and everything. But like that movie literally ends with a Ted talk. Like it's, it's like a five minute PowerPoint presentation that Seagal does after killing everybody again, to be a walking contradiction, he stops And then we have to watch his presentation on why we're all responsible for taking down the oil companies so that the environment can like survive and mother nature doesn't hate us anymore. He actually makes a plea for early electric cars. And I'm like, sir, it's 1994. I don't think anybody's up to your level yet. Then fucking fire down below again is like his Aaron Brockovich to where it's all about how Chris Christopherson, evil billionaire Chris Christopherson, by the way, is dumping toxic waste into the East Kentucky like water supply because he's like one of the big like coal miner uh, you know supporters and everything. But he's like killing a whole town, which includes Harry Dean Stanton and Stephen Lang. And Marge Helgenberger. I love her. Who's his like love interest. That's right. Who he goes, look, fire down below. This is the only one out of the entire run that we watched where I was like, this is a fucking piece of shit. I am struggling through this because it's like the worst episode of Justified you've ever watched. It sucks. But again, it just has all of Seagal's bizarre like eco concerns here to where like all of a sudden you're like, 
what are you talking about, sir? Like, why the fuck do you think that we want to take life lessons, let alone, like, Al Gore-style environmental lessons? Like, this isn't an inconvenient truth. Just fucking break that guy's arm and shut the hell up. <laughs> well, he also has no idea what he's talking about. Like, yeah, it's you, nonsense. Because you mix, again, the end of On Deadly Ground. Um, this is a guy who was at a party with his friends, and someone started talking about ecological concerns. He overheard it, read one magazine, and was like, oh, man, the earth is dying. I'm going to write into a movie. It's like, that's how deep I think he goes on anything. Oh, 100%. You know, this guy's jack-of-all-trades, master of none. You know, I mean, his characters are that, right? They know everything. But it's like... I don't think you understand the, the complexity of this. And he's just like, he, it's like he just heard that oil was bad. And he's like, did you guys know that like oil hurts the environment? Like he just like 50 years fucking too late. And we're like, dude, yeah, we do. It's his Connor for real moment. Yeah. To where it's just like all of a sudden, yeah, the celebrity becomes fucking sentient. You're like, calm down, sir. Like you're here for one reason. Entertain the plebs. Yes, and and he again he just comes across as as dumb and 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 I think the 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 phrase for me is self importance. I mean, like no self awareness and all the self importance in the world. I mean that, that scene, the TED Talk scene ends, him literally putting his head up. He walks into the middle of the people, and then these uh, Native Amer- uh, Inuits blow smoke on him while he closes his eyes and is blessed by them. This is after he's already gone on a spirit journey, like a vision quest where he becomes one of the Inuits. Yep. It's in, again, like it, they do a little bit. It, there's there's a generic story in there that they could have stuck to, which was straight up like Dances with Wolves. Because oh, yeah. again, the film starts where it's like he's working for Michael Caine. And then it's so, it's so messy of a story that in the first act, just on his own, he researches and finds like, oh, that guy's bad. And it's like, then he's then he's goes in and he's like, so he's a wonderful person from the beginning. He gets taken in by the Inuits. They save his life. They take him on a vision quest and said, you have a true spirit. You're the bear here to like right all the wrongs of the oil companies, help balance out the earth. They put him under, he goes underwater, has a spirit quest. He's a bunch of naked chicks. And then he bursts out of the water with his hands up in this like, messianic it's like a baptism scene it's really it's really even for him it's weird i would like to also point out that his vision quest includes multiple nate like naked native american women just gyrating like strippers oh yeah it's awesome yeah it's crazy it's like only his peyote quest i guess him and jim morrison like it doubles as like a trip to scores (laughs) <laughs> where you're like, I was, we should also point out that he gets the fucking tribal chief killed too. Like that man is shot to death by John C. McGinley, evil henchman John C. McGinley, wearing the most amazing evil henchman sunglasses throughout the entire movie. But it's peak, like peak McGinley, I think. This is one oh of God, his. Oh God, yeah, he's such a smarmy dick face. I because what I remember my brother and I when we were this was a one that we owned on VHS or we had it taped off HBO from a friend we watched this over and over and over again and <laughs> another one we also had was Surviving the Game so we had two McGinley's oh, hell yeah. and then we owned Point Break so we like literally three of our main films in our rotation were like three of his best like 
full tilt McGinley. Quick side question. When are we going to do an Ernest Dickerson episode? We still, it's on our list. We've been talking about it. Should we do it for October for Halloween? Like, we gotta do Demon Knight and Bones. Oh, I'm in, dude. I love Ernest Dickerson. Yeah. Uh, Demon Knight's one of my favorite horror movies. Like, it's a perfect, like, little horror action script. And he shot fucking Do the Right Thing. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. You know, kind of just some minor achievements, I guess. Yeah, I I fucking love him. Um, Anyway, back to Seagal. But another thing we got to talk about is his style, his clothes. In- oh, we, we touched on it to where you talked about, like, the weird, like, crop top thing that he was wearing. But, like, out for ju- do you want to go with Out for Justice? Like, what the fuck he's wearing throughout this movie? Yeah, so, yes, you're right. We did touch on a little bit. Out for Justice, he's wearing a lot of it. He's wearing a... It's not a, it's not a tank top. It's a cutoff. It's a leather vest. So, it's a leather vest. Sleeveless. And a beret. A green beret hat. So... I he shows up to the scene of his partner's death no. wearing a cream beret hat. I wrote that down earlier. I was just going to text it to you, but I decided I said, Jacob, if you ever die and I get a call that you're dead, I'm not going to stop. Put on my fucking beret and then go to re- go find your body. Hold I, on. I got to find the right I, hat I for this occasion. I make that vow to you now that I will not <laughs> stop to put on a fucking hat. Like, well, and again, this that movie too is just bananas. Um, bananas. But Mark, Mark for death. I feel like he created the Ed Hardy brand in that movie. Oh, he's yeah. He's got those, like, good. tigers on his chest and then on his back. It's, like, it's almost like if, like, uh, uh, Drive weren't cool. Like, he's the shitty version of Ryan Gosling. Because <laughs> it's similar. It's kind of like a baseball jacket. He's like if the driver didn't fuck. Yes. But, again, in all these films, too, the tightest goddamn pants. We were watching Hard to Kill at your place, and it's like, I can see every line of his dick. Like, it is shocking, and it's not a lot there, but he wears these, like, skin tight, even for the time period. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you even do anything? And they're like anything? Levi's. They're like stone-washed. Stone-washed Levi's. Like, super tight Levi's. I don't know. And have we touched on the running yet how, with his weird spaghetti arms? No. Like, he looks like how I imagine the spaghetti monster looks if it runs, because, like, they kind of flail around, like, his hands go everywhere. Like, it's insane. He looks like an Aqua Teen Hunger Force character. I don't, I don't think he would ever listen to anybody if they did tell him. I think earlier on, someone might have told him and said, hey, man, camera guy or, like, stunt person is like, you want to work on your run? And I guarantee. We got a trainer here. I guarantee, I just, again, I don't know him, but I can imagine him responding. I run fine. I run fine. You know what? I'll outrun anybody on set right now. Just pick it. See that camera race? guy? I'll fucking race him. $50. Let's do it. Well, that's that's the poop. That's the pooping his pants story. It's a similar idea, you know, of like he meets this guy who's like a judo master and he's like, I could beat him. He can't, he, or he can't choke me out. He's, he's that guy of like, better not. my dad can beat your dad, but also, <laughs> but, but I'm the dad, you know, it was like, I can beat up anybody in this room. Let's do it. Well, it's like you were showing me that Howard Stern clip before we started recording where Rob Schneider tells the, the screenwriting story where he's like, you know, one of his screenwriting buddies is going on, I believe to, to, you know, pitch writing on Under Siege 2. He goes and he's sitting in this like massive trailer waiting for Seagal. Seagal, of course, makes him wait for like an hour until he comes out of one of the many rooms that are in there. And Seagal emerges from it like wearing like a kimono or something and is like, I just read the greatest script in the history of screenwriting. And the screenwriter is like, you know, trying to be polite. He's like, like cool. Oh, cool. Who, who wrote it? And he goes, I did. <laughs> 
fuck are you talking about? But he's he's one of those actors that he it mixes like his his off screen persona and like he's a douche off screen and he's a douche on screen he's and just it a all dickhead. it all mix, mixes together so well and it's like how do you how do you just get through life how do you exist and I just love the fact that he's out there doing this shit man or he did like it's amazing that he held such a corner of the market for so long but he also fell pretty fucking quickly. You know, you think about... It depends on how we define fall, though. He had nine years. I would say not 88 to 97. Yeah, he has a good-ass decade. Of, of, of almost a decade of, like, big budget. He was, like, directing. He was writing. And then it's like, you again, we talk about, you know, Vern's books, Cigology, of he starts to get in that phase of the of the Anders Anders Abarkoyak films, you know, of like these exit wounds. You know, uh, he's they're they're lining him up with other people. Like there's usually he's playing the straight man to him more funny like Keaton Ivory Wayans, you know, in Glimmerman. DMX. DM, DMX, uh, Ja Rule, um, in Half Past Dead. Um, oh fuck. And or even executive decision, he's almost like the um the Janet Lee of that movie because he's killed off so early. That is one of the weirdest. That was our, that was like our psycho. I know it's like fucking lame to say that, but like I was a Seagal fan and I, my dad and I went to see the, I was going to say, tell the story about your dad seeing it. Yeah. (laughs) We're watching it. He just goes, my dad's very vocal in the theater and we're like, Oh cool. And it gets, and we're, like Seagal, wait, we're we're twenty minutes in. I'm, yeah, it's like yeah. twenty or thirty minutes. It's it's the end of the first act essentially. Yeah, when they're getting doing, on the plane. Yeah, they they use one plane to board onto another hijacked plane, and they basically create almost like a an air skywalk that they have to like float yeah. through. But it busts, and Seagal flies out and dies. And my dad just goes, "Is he fucking dead?" <laughs> <laughs> and and I, and I mean, and me too. I was like, wait, because like. They pitched that whole movie in the in the in the uh, the trailers as this is gonna be Kurt Russell together with Seagal. I'm like that's gonna be fucking awesome. I was already a Kurt Russell fan. I'm like, yeah, and it's really just a Kurt Russell movie, and it's pretty good Kurt Russell movie. And Leguizamo, there's some good Leguizamo in it too. Great Oliver Platt. Yeah, and that's a good ass movie. That's one I actually wasn't able to revisit. I didn't watch that one, and I only watched like half of Under Siege Two, which. <laughs> It was rough, and I, I was really drunk when I was watching it. That was the night I was taking those Campari and forget shots until you. I woke up super fucking hungover. You walk away like, I don't feel good. I feel like Eric Bogosian right now. After <laughs> one of his suburbia era benders. Award-winning playwright Eric Bogosian as the villain of Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. Also, how's it Dark Territory if it's on a fucking train? I just never got that title. No, I, well, there's a... There's a quote in it that where oh. it's an actual quote in the movie. I can't remember. Like one of the CIA guys says, like they're entering dark territory. It has something to do with like the, the satellite or, communications, yeah. or who gives a fuck really? <laughs> but I was like, yeah, talk radio style. Eric Bogosian as your Steven Seagal villain. Like, I was what? I was in talk radio. What the? In college. Oh really? Yeah. Oh was, the play? Uh, yeah. My buddy Mark was was. Um, was Eric Bogosian in the, in the movie version? It's John C. McGinley. I played his part. Oh, okay. An Oliver Stone adaptation. Um, That's kind of cool. I hope I have another connection to these movies as well. What? Um, in Above the Law, um, Greg Allen Williams, uh, African American actor who was uh, the partner on Baywatch. Mm-hmm. He's also in Righteous Gemstones. Right. Um, I took an acting class with him. In, oh no shit! In Atlanta, so I was just like, okay, I have a couple. 
<laughs> one degree or two degrees of separation. Yeah, it's, these... it's your Kevin Bacon moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, cool. He's a really nice guy and a good teacher. But since we brought up Eric Bogosian, I do want to talk about one other thing. It's something I texted you while watching a few of these movies in a row was the fact that like Seagal's almost like Batman in them. And by mm. that, I don't mean that he's cool like Batman because <laughs> he's not. <laughs> But I mean, it's completely the opposite. Yes. I've always had this weird theory, and I know I'm not the only one. This isn't like a 100% original thought or anything, but that like Batman was always sometimes the the least interesting part of the story being told, and the villains were more interesting than oh, yeah. like the hero themselves, like the Joker or Sandman or any, you know, any of those guys. I guess Sandman is technically Spider-Man, but yeah. you know where I'm going with this. Is that the rogues gallery. Seagal has a lot of the same thing too, especially starting with um, Marked for Death, is that the actual villains were cooler and more interesting than he was because Marked for Death is like one of the sleaziest fucking things I've ever seen in my life. And Screwface is one of the great like B-level cinematic villains. I love him in that movie. I I, ha- I don't think I'd ever seen all of Marked for Death before. No shit. And maybe- That's our boy too. That's Dwight Little. I know. And I felt bad about that. Um, I literally have a, a note here. Our boy Dwight. <laughs> um... <laughs> Um, Daniel Harris even shows up and is immediately shot. Um, it reminds <laughs> me a lot of the use of Jamaican criminals in Predator 2. Sure. You know, it was the mystical. Same year? I think it's around the It's It's close. Wait, no, Predator 2 is 1990. This is 90. No, this is 90. And they're both 90. Yeah. So there was this, this like kind of very much, it was in the zeitgeist of like, oh my God, not only are they selling drugs, but they have powers. I was going to say, this is the Reagan era thing really shining through though. And honestly, we're now into the George... Uh, Bush era HW, yeah. Yeah, of him, again, being a former CIA guy there, but it's like the war on drugs is now spilling over it in the 90s, and it doesn't matter if you're Nicaraguan or Mexican or Jamaican, frankly. It, you know, Steven Seagal is here to to make sure that the poison doesn't make it make its way to the streets of the neighborhood. Well, and in this one, especially, it's like the suburbs. Yeah. Like the other ones, he's Which like from- Which is the from- strangest story beat because it's like- Keith David is a fucking football coach slash ex. He they were in Vietnam together. Vietnam together or something. Yeah, and you know Seagal comes home after retiring at, from the DEA, I believe it is, and just happens to get embroiled in the suburban drug war that's happening because Rastafarians have invaded the Chicago suburbs. Like, sure, I guess it's. It's a really, um, it's a very racist movie. I mean, like, <laughs> right, frankly, um, just to put it, to put too fine a point on it, um, obviously xenophobia ran throughout 80s and 90s action films. I mean, just like jingoistic nationalism, you know, all over it, right? This one is like, even for the time, like, whoa. It's real stuff. I mean, it's really focused on, again, like the the infection of our, of our white youths by these people of color who were only there to hurt them. And they have e- they have evil in their hearts. They have, they're, they're inhuman. The, the blacks. Way, the, yeah. I mean, it's full on, like really, I was watching and I was like, Jesus Christ. I don't think Randall's grandmother would approve, <laughs> but it's, it's walking tall. I mean, I think it's, it's, yeah, 100%. It's, 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 it's that narrative. You could tell they're like, oh, let's just do walking tall with him. You know, again, with a, again, it's not, 
Walking Tall is always about his friend being the bad guy, which is actually more similar to like Out for Justice, growing up with someone and now having to like hunt them down. Yeah, you know, like that. So he's he's pulling. They're pulling generic stuff from all kinds of action and genre movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, Seagal's wife is either dying or his family's dying or he's saving somebody else's family from dying, you know, at the hand usually of like some kind of horrible drug dealer or mafioso or criminal or what have you. It's just like these plots aren't like over. Well, sometimes they get complicated like in Nico, but a lot of the times it's pretty straightforward what's happening. The cool thing about Marked for Death is that it happens with like it climaxes with almost like an inverse Scarface to where we're rooting for the assassins who are like waging war against this drug compound. And like Steven Seagal, after shooting a giant slab of beef with a machine gun, mind that you. That scene is bonkers. It's awesome. That, cause it's, it's their, the normal prep scene of any 80s or 90s action right. movie, which are some of my favorites. And it's, it's him. It's the um, Jamaican American cop. And then Keith David. And, he acts like he invented the silencer. It's so funny. He's like, no, we're aware of a silencer is because no, watch this. Didn't hear a thing, did you? Yeah. It's like, yeah, no, it's a silencer. Like we, we did hear the bullets hit the meat though. Yeah. And like, it's so and he's got those shooting glasses on these yellow shooting glasses, and he's pouring like and he's pouring gunpowder into bullets. It's it's hilarious. And again, that's what makes these movies so great, is he's so self-serious. Again, like you said, how can we make fun of this guy because He's just ridiculous, and he yeah. believes there's no there's no irony in a, a a drop of irony in any of these movies. That's what I, to one of our earliest points. I do want to return to those because we didn't 100 percent litigate it. Is that like are we ironically liking these, or are we just recognizing what makes them so idiosyncratic and and enjoying that? Because like none of my enjoy like I can. No, with the blood bank quote and what we just talked about with the tooling up scene and marked for death and stuff is that you can recognize the moments where he's like ridiculous or unintentionally funny. But at the same time, I never feel like I'm on 100% laughing at the movies themselves. I'm laughing at Seagal a little bit, but I'm also like, I enjoy them just on like a very base lizard brain, 13 year old boy level. It's a really good question. And I think it is the latter. I think that I am, I can speak personally, I'm genuinely enjoying these movies. It's nostalgia too. You know, I sure. grew up with these. Um, but A, they're entertaining, straight up entertaining, regardless of the irony. Like they are like good, fun action movie plots. They're generic, but they're, they're great. And the fight and the action is good. Like that's the thing. It's like the action is good in all of them. The fight scenes are great. The car chases are great. The gunfights are great. Like, the Mark for Death gunfights are absolutely insane. Like, they also first, seem dangerous. Like, the, a lot of the stunts and car explosions yeah. and stuff, they have that cannon energy of, like, well, kind mean, of yeah. operating without a safety net a little bit. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, like, Dwight Little, again, our boy in Mark for Death, that opening scene where they go into the brothel, and there's these angles of just, like, him blasting his giant fucking like 1911 Colt. And it's just these awesome shots in the red light. And I'm like, this is a beautiful, cool looking movie. This is action movie heaven. I think I have a line here. that said, all I'm going to do for the rest of my life is watch him cut and break people, people's arms over his shoulder. Like when he's doing that, I'm it's, it's action movie ecstasy. I think that's one of the other amazing things about Seagal's career too, is that he actually got quality journeyman filmmakers to make these things because like Andrew Davis, as we kind of already mentioned, makes Nico. 
Then he comes back for Under Siege, and then immediately after Under Siege, you know, makes The Fugitive, like literally the next year. And I mean, and he also, you know, brings, to, to bring it back also to the, the Batman comparison, what possibly the Seagal Joker is Tommy Lee Jones and Under Siege. Like yep. He's just an agent of chaos. And a great Busey. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Busey's great in that movie. Um, but it's like, he gets these guys who know what to do behind the camera to make them. Um, Dwight Little, as we already mentioned, making uh, Marks for Death. And then our boy, uh, taking it all the way back to episode one of Secret Handshake, John Flynn makes Out for Justice. And John Flynn is as good a like workman or pure like carpenter craftsman of a director that you could possibly get because he just stitches scenes together. It's like you ask him to make you a table, he makes you the table. And like without for justice, it's like what we're going to do is make a run all night Steven Seagal action movie. And what does John Flynn do? He's just the consummate carpenter. He shows up and he makes a run all night Steven Seagal action movie. And it's fucking awesome while also being just as idiosyncratic as the rest. I think maybe that's what we're getting as we get the best of both worlds. Yeah. We get a solid action movie. Just like, okay, you could shut off all your critical brain functions and just say, shit, I'm having a great time. Like you said, lizard brain. This is crazy. This is crazy. And then you just add on top of that, like use the word texture a lot, but the texture of like insanity, you know, of like, again, these solid filmmakers, but also just like you add the weirdness and the, the, um, Things that uh, that Seagal's obsessed with that he's trying to put in these movies and his complete narcissism and these movies just blossom because of that. It's like, oh great, a great action movie made by and starring a complete psychopath. Yes, sure, why not? Please. I mean, you referenced Neil Breen when we were <laughs> we're watching them as like a, again a guy who's like way more of an outsider artist than Seagal, obviously, but who takes whatever he's doing 100% seriously. Now, Breen doesn't exactly have the same level of craft as, say, like an Andrew Davis or a John Flynn, but like there's still the same sort of self-serious, I'm here to do my thing and you're going to buy into it or not. And you're like, okay, I guess. But like Out for Justice is plotless, but also like it's almost entirely a movie made out of texture. It's kind of like the movie that we talked about in our grimy NYC episode, uh, Born to Win, only it's all just in Brooklyn with Steven Seagal just prowling the streets all night looking for a fucking cracked out William Forsythe who's fat as shit and still looks like a Dick Tracy villain. Oh, he's this, I mean... Tommy Lee Jones, like you said, is the Joker, but like this is a close second. I mean, Forsyth. This is his clay face. <laughs> I was gonna say a penguin. Yeah. This is one of my favorite Forsyth roles. I like him in everything he's ever done. He's unhinged. He's in this. I mean, he is he actually sells what the script is trying to do because you know it starts out again, there's not a lot of backstory. It's just like, okay, we both grew on the streets together, you know, we're all Italian. But, like, Richie was always bad. And he walks up and shoots Seagal's partner in the back of the head in front of his kids and his wife. And then they're driving away. And a he woman- doesn't just shoot him in the back of the head. He then lights him up, like, with a full clip of bullets. Again, yeah. with gr- some great Verhoeven-level squibs just blowing this dude's chest out. Yeah, and he's just, like, and he's so, again, he's smoking crack the whole movie. And then he walks over. They're, they're getting away. 
And a woman's like, hey, get out of the way in the car. He gets out of the car and shoots her in the fucking head. Oh, that's right. He and carjacks her and just blows her fucking head up. Yeah, he doesn't carjack. He just walks over and kills her and leaves oh, her yeah. there. It's like a road rage <laughs> incident. Yeah, and he's, I mean, he's awesome in this. He a fucking uh, Uncle Junior. Oh, yeah. As his dad, as Richie's dad. Um, you have the great uh, um, Gina Gershon, who played the same part in mm. Red Heat. Mm-mm-mm. It's the same thing of like you know this the connection between oh. the cop and oh that was the Gina Gershon character that, for a minute yeah she face off as well yeah it was exactly. the extra the extra like either the sister or the wife or the girlfriend and of she the was criminal. a little good like you could see it kind of shine through yep. but like she was still hard ass super hot Gina Gershon oh, like yeah. it was just what she was great at because she even has one of the great like lines against the call too oh what you want me to do take you on the Take you into the corner and suck your dick a little bit, and then you'll leave me alone. No, nah, you, you were never that you good. Were never that good. <laughs> Seagal, I don't believe. If Gina Gershon started sucking you off, I'm gonna, you know, guess you're gonna enjoy it. This one too. I mean, blowjob expert Steven Seagal. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, though. I mean, like, I think one of the weird things about him as a star is, like, again, the. Um, uh, Ethnic malleability of who he can play. God, you know, this or, one has one of the worst. Or who he wants to play. Because again, like you said he's from fucking Michigan. And he's playing a New York, I mean, full-on Italian. I mean, he goes he goes, he goes, goes heavy and above the law. I think he goes heavier here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, he's, I doing, know, he's trying to do full straight Brooklyn. Oh, what are we doing here? He, like, he literally shows up to that whole pool hall scene that we referenced early. Like, he's doing it with the full, like, almost, like, Tony Soprano or even fucking, like, Paulie Walnut's accent where he's like, oh, you think, what? Ain't nobody seen Richie. You seen Richie? Hey, oh. And he's just pushing people in the phone booths. He's slapping the bartender around. And then he just whips out that fucking cue ball and starts whacking dudes in the mouth with it. And then there's also randomly that fucking Asian guy sitting against the wall who's also a master at stick fighting. Like, what the fuck? There was always that guy in crews and action movies. You see it in Blade. Right. There's like it's like Donald like Donald. But what's Logue he doing and, in the Brooklyn like pool hall bar? He's, he's muscle. He's martial art muscle. It's an eighties and nineties staple. It's like I understand why Michael Rooker shows up for thirty seconds and above the law just as like a patron in that one like shitty bar that, that uh Steven Skull storms into to get, I believe, his niece off of crack. At the time, yeah, it's his. It's his niece, and she's got she's got she's, co- she's got cocaine with olives. Yeah, <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> but also, that is one of the great weird ass plot holes in Nico. Not even plot holes, but plot like what the fucks that I've ever seen. So he storms into that bar, and it's one of many Steven Seagal bar fights. And the bartender there is like a massive asshole. But instead of just yeah. disappearing. For the rest of the movie, like the rest of the bartenders normally do. Like, I don't even think the bartender shows up again in either On Deadly Ground or Out for Justice. And so this shitty mulleted bartender, who I believe was also in Code of Silence, he looks he shows like up as kind of an asshole. Um, <laughs> God. But uh, he shows up later when Nico's getting framed up by the government and, and Henry Silva to, to, to get him off the trail, the bartender's in there being like, oh, and he sent some of my patrons into orbit. And I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean? But then later, 
after Henry Silva like gets Seagal and is trying to torture him, the bartender shows up again. And I'm like, why is the bartender hanging out with this CIA torturer? That doesn't make any sense. I thought the same thing. I'm like, first of all, I didn't like that guy. I thought he's really annoying. I'm like, wait, are, is, he <laughs> well, yeah. st- is he still fucking here? But I don't know. Out for justice. Like if we're talking about all of the different iconic and trademark kind of Seagal scenes of him clearing dudes out. Like, I'm on your side with Out for Justice. That's the best one in the pool hall. And it's also, like, the apex of just the the Seagal bar fight. Like, so many of his take place in bars, and that's still the very best one. It, it's it's absolutely the best. And that was the one that, like my brother and I watched a couple years ago, and we're like, wait, how did we sleep on this movie? Like, this, we had never seen it growing up. And we're like, wow. Um, and I kind of was like, oh, I didn't realize how fucking cool he was. And now here we are again discussing it. And I'm, he's, when he wants to be, the act, you know, when he's beating ass, he's cool. Man, when he's beating me, I'm all for Steven Zagal. Doesn't have the best one liner, though. It had the most inexplicable one comes in Marked for Death, where he kills Jimmy Fingers. He blows him away. And Jimmy Fingers is screaming at him after, frankly, like, so Seagal busts in. Jimmy Fingers is with two, like, leather-clad prostitutes who Seagal quickly shoes out of the room. They get into a shouting max match, and Jimmy Fingers goes, Oh, I'm Jimmy Fingers. I'm a made fucking man. You can't touch me. And Seagal shoots him in the head and goes, God made man. Now, I literally texted you immediately after I went, What the fuck does that even mean? Oh, it's so weird. Well, there's... um. There's the scene. I think one of my favorite moments that's actually cool is just the, <laughs> is the credits of um, about for justice. And he be, he, oh, yeah. he beats up he beats up this pimp who's beating up on a prostitute, and he throws the guy through a windshield. And then the thing goes full peck and paw, and the shot goes through the windshield with this guy's body hanging through it. You see freeze frame, freeze frame. Seagal look down, and it's full on wild bunch, and it's like. Steven Seagal. I'm like, okay, that is cool. He's never looked cooler, I think, than that. Out for justice. It was fucking badass. But I mean, that's Flynn though, right? Because Flynn, we even brought up in relation to Peck and Paul when talking about Rolling Thunder. His getaway, the whole ending. Yeah, he's one of the great action directors of all time. Like, he's never let me down. I've never seen a bad John Flynn movie. Like, even, you know, Lock Up is amazing. I just watched one I... The only one I'd never seen before, bestseller, uh, which is written by Larry Cohen and stars Brian Dennehy and James Woods. And we're like... If you've never seen this fucking movie, it's so good. It's about Brian... uh, Brian Dennehy's a, a retired cop who was in on, like, basically trying to stop a bank robbery at one point. And then he writes a book about it. He's Joseph Wamba, basically. Essentially. He's supposed to be Joseph Wamba. Yeah, same yeah. idea. He r- writes a book about it. It becomes a bestseller. And then James Woods, who it's revealed was in on the bank robbery too, but is like a high-level hitman, comes to him because Denny, he can't produce another book. He has no other stories. And Woods is like, follow me around for a while. I'll give you a book. And like Dennehy just like follows this like psycho hitman around. But like the action in it is amazing. The performances are amazing. And it's just like a sturdy little thriller that gets all of like Larry Cohen's like subversive ticks that he throws into all of his movies. Like Flynn, unfuckwithable. Like he's one of the, again, one of the great 
cinematic craftsman of all time and out for justice a lot like Nico like Nico uses Chicago as the city like it really gets that street level kind of texture to it like out for justice begins with an Arthur Miller quote about living in the neighborhood in Brooklyn it's amazing and then but then the movie to be fair does live up to that because it's all about Seagal running all night and using all of his contacts in the neighborhood and again how he's like a man of the people but it's all shot in Brooklyn and it brings all that real Brooklyn New York texture to it it's fucking awesome like I'm surprised they didn't have Seagal in a Mets hat the entire time well it was an era we just we don't see movies like that anymore where they shoot in New York like that it's very rare you know, like, wow, this is just, like, in the city, like, on the streets. And like, it feels a, like a real end of an era, like, NYC grime, mm-hmm. like, post-80s, post-Lustig and everything. Because Lustig had just made a couple Maniac Cop films and stuff that have yeah. a, a very similar energy. But, like, Out for Justice even has that amazing car chase where, like, Seagal's going down the middle of, like, that one. And it's it's all those crazy, like, speed bumps that are in there. And the oh, car's, yeah. like, jacking up. And you're yes. just watching it being like, how can the suspension of this car take this? But they you probably had care. six cars. <laughs> exactly. Because it's so fucking cool. But, like, shout out John Flynn. I know he's dead. But he was, like, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. I mean, he now has two movies with spine numbers on Secret Handshake. Well, you and I both love A Workman. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, Bedeker has a whole episode on, on A Workman filmmaker. Yeah. Who, just, who made a found a corner as much as we're big auteur guys like we really respect the journeyman that's why i love uh italian you know genre filmmakers from the 70s so much i love the sergio corbucci's and the umberto lenzi's and the fernando de leo's and all those guys because it's like they could do a giallo one year they could do a Podiateschi the next year. They could do a comedy in like Corbucci's case here. They could do a spaghetti western. Like they would literally do it back to back to back to back. It was just they were as malleable and would apply their trade to whatever genre they were assigned. And you just loved watching it because there was always turning in a finished, entertaining product. Yeah, I love any any kind of like I'm trying to think of it. There's one I was just thinking of, a horror filmmaker. Um even someone like Joseph Zito, you know, yeah. a guy who like made a couple of one of my favorite Friday Thirteenth movies. He made Red Scorpion. Like this, is this guy who like was just like, hey, I know how to make a movie. Invasion USA with Chuck Norris. Yep, absolutely. Which I still got to get you to watch. I do. I need to see that. You want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right.
questions about 1991's Out for Justice, Martin, top three Seagal, go. Under Siege, number one, forever. Wow, I mean, it's, okay. It's the peak. Um, I loved this movie growing up. Uh, my friend Drew and I, from middle school, we used to watch it together, and like that was his favorite movie, period. Um, and Did I ever tell you my dad took me to see that in the theater when I was 10? Or whatever. I went with my mom and dad, ate a giant tub of popcorn, and like I think they only covered my eyes for like the Tommy Jones like head stand, stab at the end. But not for the Erica Eleniac boobie boobies. I don't think they saw those coming. Oh man, that was awesome. Um, but th- that movie is like for my brother too. Like we watched that a lot. Um, it's Die Hard in a boat. You know, like that era when they were just doing the you know, the one soldier or one cop with a lot of terrorists. Well, there's two things about it that I find real interesting. It is die hard on a boat. Only it's the inverse of McLean to where like McLean always stayed and every man and used that kind of tenacity to take down Hans Gruber because Tommy Lee Jones is playing like this mix of like Ed Harris from the rock but also he becomes Hans Gruber on the back half because, because he just, yeah, he just wants to get paid for selling these missiles. But it's like under siege was also like a rock precursor. But again, instead of being an, like Casey Ryback is presented as an everyman. He's, he's the cook on the ship, you know, and everybody of and course he, he loves dances him. He with, dances, yeah. he can throw knives and shit, but then it's later revealed that he wasn't just a cook. He was a Navy SEAL, Black Ops. Kept secret by Kept secret the captain. By the captain of the ship. You know, I told no one your secret. Because he likes his boulevards so much. <laughs> but it's like, again, he's the greatest dude in history. We're like McLean, in the real diehard, McLean's just a fucking New York cop having a bad day. Ryback is just like, I'm Black Ops. I'm gonna lead this entire thing. He even trains Erica Eleniac to shoot machine guns to where she goes from like straight up, like short round with big tits. But in, by the end, she's actually manning like an MP5 and like mowing motherfuckers down. Yes, yes. Um, While Damien Chapa from Blood In, Blood Out is a total bitch. He's the one who complains the entire time. He's like, I don't want to do this. And Eric Hillaniac just basically chumps him and, is, and like cocks the gun. Is like, fine, whatever. And is going. That's right. That's right. Um, okay, number two, Out for Justice. Sure. Um, again, just solid. That's when I kind of became a fan again. And then Mark for Death. Uh, really trashy. I love, again, it's not woke by any means and could not, would not fly today. No, sir. Um, but I, it's also got some amazing action scenes and some of my favorite gunplay in any of the movies. I think Dwight, our boy Dwight did some really great stuff. Cause that's the cool thing about Seagal too, is like the gore is amazing too. In that one, there's a lot of decapitations, dudes getting their arms cut off. Like it's, it's Dwight little in almost full horror movie mode, just applying that aesthetic to a Seagal film. Absolutely. How about you for three? This is tough because my order actually changed because like you, I was enjoying myself so much watching these because my adult brain was reevaluating these movies that my dad, you know, I experienced them for the first time because they were some of the ones that my dad, I've, I've told this story numerous times, notably on the Hard Target episode, because my dad would bring home a stack of tapes and half of them were like action movies like Van Damme or uh, Steven Seagal. He hated Chuck Norris, so never any Chuck Norris. But it was like Seagal was his dude. Like we watched these movies a lot. Um, 
his roommate had a very colorful term for how he he described uh, Steven Seagal running that is not woke and I will not repeat <laughs> one whatsoever. But he also was fascinated with his spaghetti arms, let's say. So, but it's hard for me to pick because like my brain completely reordered them because I think I found things or different things interesting as an adult that I ever did as like a lizard brained like preteen or even teenager. So like Marked for Death was always my favorite mm-hmm. like growing up because it was the sleaziest. It felt like a little illicit. There's some titties in it. There's that one like when again the whole brothel like shootout sequence where the, the topless girl like opens fire and kills the one dude and he just like totally shotguns this naked I, woman. I killed a woman, father. I killed a woman, father. I need to cleanse my soul. <laughs> But, like, that was a big one, and I loved all the sword play was amazing. Oh, yeah. All of, the, like, the the dismemberment. It just it felt sleazy. It felt like something I shouldn't have been watching as a kid. And I know that that played into, like, me liking it a lot back then. But revisiting as adult, it was probably my least favorite revisit mm. of the ones that are actually good. Like, Fire Down Below just fucking sucks. But it's, like... Out of the ones that I really like, Marked for Death was the one I found kind of boring because I think it actually lacks idiosyncrasy. And like that it's was pretty straightforward. Thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like there's not a whole lot to it. It's like you get a buddy thing with Keith David, you get some really good action, you get a great villain with Screwface, you get that amazing Jimmy Cliff song too, which is pretty oh, cool. Yep. That literally is like the story of the whole movie. <laughs> well, he's like saying, Go to kill Screwface. Yeah. Like during. Screwface, your time has come. <laughs> but it's like. Junk roll. Yeah, it, it's such it's, a good. It's a, it's a fucking bop. Oh, it's definitely getting fucking dropped in this episode. <laughs> but um, yeah, that that one isn't as high up because I think on this round, just as somebody who's watched now so many of these movies, written about them professionally, worked in a video store, blah 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 blah. blah um, like, and is just frankly older now. Like my brain is engaging with different stuff. Like I'm finding different stuff interesting. And for me, like all of the idiosyncrasy of Nico is probably well, that's my number one now because mm. I like how it's a weird autobiography of Seagal. I like all of the the strange kind of contradictory politics. Like it takes its its name possibly ironically from a Nixon quote. There's the Iran Contra stuff, but then the action just fucking rules. It's really good, and there's way more of it than Hard to Kill. Like Hard to Kill is kind of a oh, slog to man. get through. It's still super entertaining and fun, and but weird. there are yeah. huge gaps where like you you coast on the weirdness of that movie because there isn't much action whatsoever. And honestly, if we're sticking with the whole like. Seagal movies are only as interesting as possibly the villains. Like the villain in that one isn't great because Bill Sadler's just kind of in the shadows the whole time. Yeah, you until don't the see end. him much. Yeah. So like, Nico is now my number one. I just love the movie. It's fascinating. I can't believe it exists. Frankly, Henry Silva is amazing in it. He's one of the great Seagal villains. So that's gonna be my number one. Number two is Out for Justice. For all of the reasons we listed. All of the texture, the John Flynn of it all, um, the fact that it doesn't really have a plot, it almost becomes a hangout movie in a weird way as you watch Seagal kind of like navigate this Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, all of the strange outfits that he's wearing, the the Gino Toscani Brooklyn, like, oh, hey, like it's so ridiculous the entire time. But it just, and also like, that's one of the first movies he really starts to get fat. Like you're starting to see a, a bit of the pudge 
kind of emerge. So like, again, my brain's like drifting toward this idea of like, why was Seagal famous? Like, he's not handsome. He's not charismatic. He's not a good actor. Like, he's still a good fighter in the stunts and action and stuff are good, but they're almost more good because of Flynn and not because of him. But like, I don't know. There's just, it's a vibe, man. To, to put it in the most like uh, astute critical terms possible. Yeah. You just kind of roll with that movie and really hang out and you want to get high you will. And you'll just kind of zone out, <laughs> sink into the couch and enjoy it. So like out for justice is number two, number three, probably under siege, frankly. I mean, it's just so fucking good. And we haven't even really talked about how like Seagal's not really in it that much. Like, that's the big story about that is that it became more of a Tommy Lee Jones movie than it did an actual Steven Seagal movie because, again, Tommy Lee Jones is so fucking good in it and is just, like, dialed up to 12 the entire time. I put that on uh, something along the lines about how I wish Seagal, or not Seagal, Tommy Lee Jones had played more villain parts and allowed allowed himself to kind of let his freak flag fly a little more. And our buddy Liam O'Donnell... (laughs) (laughs) chimed in with being like, man, back in the days when a a committed actor didn't have to fear fentanyl. (laughs) But he like, and a couple of people did point out is that we did get that Tommy Lee Jones energy a little more than maybe I'm giving credit for, particularly in like Batman forever. Like when he's doing Harvey Dent and everything and and Two-Face. But like there, he's really going for it. And he really steals the movie it was Seagal's biggest movie and the movie that really kind of catapulted him into the mainstream with Andrew Davis again is that like he steals the movie away from its main star and it still grossed like almost 160, 100, like 70, 80 million dollars, something like that. Like it was a big ass hit and like it was a diehard ripoff more or less, but it just it transcended it by having this great cast. There's really great craftsmen again behind it. And it's just fucking entertaining as hell. And like when Seagal, like it's almost a perfect two-hander because when it's Seagal's movie, you just get a really kick-ass Steven Seagal movie. And then when it's fucking, and Casey Ryback is actually probably one of the most understated, likable Seagal characters. It's one of his least douchey roles. Least talky too, yeah. Least talky. And you kind of hate all the Navy guys way more than him because they're bigger dickheads than he is. But then on the other hand, when it's not Seagal's movie, you get this kick-ass Tommy Lee Jones movie where he's just really hamming it up and, and loving life as being Han Gruber so like Under Siege would be my number three hell yeah so double feature I, I've been looking here I was trying to like I, I have one um, why don't you start and I just want to double check on my my pick double feature I'm torn so I'm gonna cheat a little bit and do a triple feature okay so I'd love to do Code of Silence cool. uh, the early Andrew Davis movie that he made before um, Nico above the law and under siege, obviously it has Chuck Norris who, uh, all, and also a Chicago PD robot. He's in, investigating this kind of cover up done by the police. It had a lot of the same actors as Nico, the, that sh- same kind of Chicago texture and just that great Andrew Davis action. And like, I think it's actually one of Chuck Norris's more, personable or maybe charismatic roles because you want to talk about another guy who's kind of just like a sentient block of wood like Chuck Norris 100% was if you put like a fake beard on like a two by four you kind of get the same performance 
But, like, that movie's pretty fucking good as a robot. So, like, fuck. I like that one a lot. Um, then I would go with Out for Justice, obviously, with John Flynn. But before that, I would to almost do it like a triple feature of great uh, performances from, like, action stars of the era. I would probably throw Lockup in, which our boy Brandon Stusnig is going to write a piece about uh, for our site coming up this week, too. But Lockup's, like, a great prison movie that John Flynn made with Sylvester Stallone. Donald Sutherland plays, like, an evil warden in it, has a great football sequence in it, and it's just a really good kind of almost straight-up exploitation movie that Stallone gives himself over to and is really fucking good in. I think it's, like, one of the overlooked, like, Stallone movies of all time that every time I throw it on, again, because of the John Flynn of it all, you just get a solid three and a half stars. Like, I'm not telling you this is the greatest movie of all time, but you're going to, like, watch the shit out of it and really enjoy yourself with a couple beers. So that would be my triple feature, my cheating triple feature. I would do Blue Steel with uh, Catherine Bigelow. Oh, that's a good one. So I was, like, searching here, and I was like, man, I, I was like, I, was like I, I, I had an image in the back of my head. I didn't think you liked that movie. I don't that much, um, but I think it would line up well with this and actually okay. play off it well. I mean... I don't like it for a Bigelow movie. It's it's like not my favorite of hers, but mm. a very similar feel of like a, a cop hunting like a psychopath that they are associated with, even if they don't know it. Like she doesn't really realize at first. Also, it, where Forsyth is cracked out of his head, like uh, Ron Silver is straight up like walking cocaine. Yeah, absolutely. Again, these men who are just like have through use of drugs, but also they're, they're so insane that they have to be taken down like dogs, you know, you know, these cops who are kind of, uh, I know that blue steel is not in one night, but it kind of feels like that, you know, it's like this night world uh, of New York. It's also kind of the cop, Jamie Lee Curtis answer to the Halloween slasher to Mm -hmm. where like, she's kind of the final girl again in it, but she has to like, embrace the gun and turn it on the maniac this time and to take him out like it's it's an interesting pairing with carpenter's halloween was well, also really I mean to her part but also the role of like the killer is like the emasculation you get in like carol clover and everything but his whole thing starts because he's emasculated by her right you know it's like i am a coward i was like i, I basically almost died i didn't stop this robbery she saved my life and now i need to reclaim my masculinity i feel like a little bitch you know i'm gonna murder everybody you know and so there's definitely like that theme too you have this like I don't think Richie feels like that in Out for Justice, but he also is this like puffing his chest punk kid who never grew up. No, Ritzy, the the thing about Out for Justice I kept thinking about is how it's almost like a kaiju movie to where like <laughs> Richie is one kaiju and Steven Seagal is the other and they're just stomping around Brooklyn the entire yeah. time until they finally meet and throw down because that fight between Richie and Steven Seagal, Gino Toscani is quite fucking good and like they break a lot of shit. Oh, you can tell it's a set. Like all oh, those yeah. things, like they built the set to be destroyed. Yeah, everything's so flimsy. They're just throwing each other through like every piece of furniture they yeah, see. But just it's particle board everywhere. Awesome yeah, because like again, Forsyth is really going for it. Yeah, absolutely. Remake. No. Yeah, absolutely. The not. whole point of this episode is Seagal. You don't remake a Steven Seagal movie without Steven Seagal. Like, no, it's just. If anything, I think we would bounce off of our earlier point is not that we would want to see a remake. We just want to watch more. We want to watch 
the remake of Steven Seagal himself, how he morphed throughout time so that we can continue to kind of track how weird he actually became and how strange and frankly shitty these movies became. Because again, to take it back to the beginning of the episode, these were sort of unlike anything else in the genre. Like, you know, boilerplate plots aside, they still had their own vibe. They still had their own fighting style. They still had their own idiosyncrasy and very strange, like... (laughs) leading man like there was nothing else like them and they were actually pretty fucking good and then he torpedoes his own career by getting too big of a head and becoming some kind of weirdo activist and then he had to go to dtv i be think beginning with the patriot yeah that's his first dtv but he would still work in with stuff like Vern. you referenced Seagalology. he like breaks down Seagal's careers into a couple different phases he has like the golden era which is the stuff that we really like and he has like the silver era which is when he starts to transition into like cradle of the grave and yeah that the weird well no, no that's that's all the like yeah. the, the ends with the activist shit and then the transitional stuff is when like he's he starts making dtv movies but there's also some of the theatrical stuff that we reference like exit wounds and stuff but then you get just straight to the the dtv dreck where he's like you know david gordon green wrote an intro for like the updated uh version of Vern's book and it's like he even talks about like even during the dtv years you know he loves seagal his entire career and like even during those years like when he's making four or five fucking movies a year kind of like you know dementia addled bruce willis was at the end of his career is that it's like he still found stuff to like because this guy's such a fucking weirdo yeah absolutely so no we can't remake it but we do get to the ultimate question is out for justice a face melter I would say yes. Um, I, I think there's scenes. Really? I think there are scenes that are face melter scenes. Maybe not as a whole, but like for instance, too I, much of a hangout movie for me to be a face melter. But I would just say the action when the action does happen. That's when my brother and I were both kind of perked up because it starts out like, all right, cool. I'm just watching this like, when we were having fun. All of a sudden, you know, you get to like the the deli scene. You yeah, know? it's just like I think the action scenes are are pretty like face meltery. It's just like, whoa, oh, oh, shit. But I agree. You don't get the, like, hard target face meltery of, like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. You know. The thing is, there's almost too many valleys between the peaks of violence. And, like, the valleys are actually really enjoyable. But if your entire movie is valley, I don't know if that certifies as a face melter. I think it's fair. Now, to be fair, I saw a bona fide face melter today with Barbarian, a new horror movie that's coming out. And it made me, so I think I'm a little biased here because like, I was like, I walked out and I literally was like, there it is. That's what a face melter feels like, like straight up. And for me, Out for Justice doesn't deliver that. It delivers a different vibe of like, we're just chilling here with Steven Seagal while he stomps through Brooklyn like a yeah, giant kaiju. Absolutely. I, that may, it's fair. Again, I love this movie and I love the action scenes and I do like the stuff in between, but I think you're right that maybe it's not like that. The definition of a face melter. There's no real adrenaline rush. Like you get a couple spikes. It's almost like doing shitty cocaine. (laughs) Is that like it hits you real fast and out for justice and you can get that bit of a face rush, but then like it comes down and you're like, I need another bump, man. And then he goes in and hits a dude with a cue ball and you're like, yeah. Well, Martin, this was great. Indeed, this is great. This is a really fun episode to do. And I hope everybody there enjoyed it. What do we have next for them? I have no idea. Well, we kind of already recorded a bonus episode that's going to drop 
And that's going to be Clerks and the, the some films from Kevin Smith. Oh, and then we're going to get into a little bit of a, a book club mm-hmm. um, with basically a, one of our biggest secret. Not, I wouldn't say secret handshake, but a filmmaker we both adore. Right. Um, there's two that are big crossovers, and it's one of them. And so. with Martin saying book, I'm pretty sure what you guys can can pretty much easily predict what it is. It is on the New York Times bestseller list. It was number I believe, one at the number one spot. <laughs> and then we're also going to work in a couple Chevy Chase uh, investigative reporter movies in there too, because there's a new release that I've also seen, but I can't talk about yet. Um, that's quite good, and we're going to base a whole episode around. But you're going to have to stick around for all of that coming up on Secret Handshake. See you soon. See you next time. Girl, it's alright. Girl, it's alright. Girl, it's alright about me.